Welcome to the Legal Aid Legends podcast, where we talk to leaders who helped create and shape the legal aid system in Texas. I'm Pete Gallego, your host for a glimpse into Texas legal aid history for this project of the Texas Access to Justice Foundation. And today we have with us one of my uh, uh, heroes, uh, one of the more prominent people in the history of legal aid, uh, Bill Whitehurst. Bill, thank you so much for being here uh, with us today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, I have so many questions for you. I uh, Even when I graduated from law school and looked up at the lawyers that I wanted to be like, uh, you were one of them. And I, uh, as one of the state's uh, preeminent uh, lawyers in, in various fields, medical malpractice and other things, I mean, there were so many causes that you could have chosen to uh, be involved with, to lend your name to and your energy and effort. But you chose legal aid. Why is that? Well, uh, I think it was, in looking back, fairly natural. Uh, my background uh, before I came to uh, law school was uh, as a pharmacist. And uh, pharmacy was the access to our, our health system, uh, either in the state or, or nationwide. And I found the same to be true uh, in law, that it didn't work. Our legal system could not work unless everyone had access to the courts, access to the system. So from early on, I had a, I kept a pro bono docket, even though I was specializing in the medical legal field. Uh, and uh, it was very natural uh, for me to do that, I think, in, in hindsight. And then that grew, of course, into fighting for legal aid because it became a fight, fighting for funding, the legal for the Legal Services Corporation, and one thing led to another, and I became very involved as president of the Young Lawyers and president of the State Bar. Well, speaking of the uh, the early days, IOLTA as a program, interest on lawyers' uh, trust accounts. I mean, it was a voluntary program, and uh, people could choose to participate or not. And suddenly, it became a mandatory: you will participate in this program, and it was very controversial. Uh, when it started. So tell us a little bit about uh, about your experience during those days. It, it did become <clears throat> controversial. Uh, to my surprise, when, when this idea came up, I thought it was pure genius. Uh, we needed, we were fighting for funding on the, on the federal level, and here was a chance to produce money on the state level, and big money in Texas. A lot of, a lot of lawyers, a lot of trust funds. The concept was, of course, uh, that uh, those funds which were going to the banks would now go to legal services for the poor. Seemed very simple to me and a no-brainer. And when I went around the state uh, asking lawyers to, to uh, participate in the voluntary program, I, I would use that example. I said, here's a pile of money. It's your choice. You can either give it to the banks or you can give it to legal services for the poor. You can't use it yourself. You can't benefit from it. Well, everybody jumped on the bandwagon, but the big firms signed up very uh, graciously, and and uh, and then all of a sudden, it started. The, the the firm started dropping out, and we couldn't understand why this was becoming a problem. Well, what happened was we found that the banks were really providing a benefit to the firms whose trust accounts they handled in the form of compensating balances. So their interest rates on other loans were lower as long as the banks could get their free money uh, from, from the, uh, their trust accounts. That was improper. We went to the Supreme Court. Judge Pope said, well, we'll stop that. Uh, 
and he made it mandatory. And at that point, it, we were we were home free because we all they had to do it. The banks they had no choice with the banks. It, it wasn't a something between the banks and the firm. It was a requirement, and we started raising really large sums of money back in the early 2000s. Well, and you say you were home free, but really that was just the beginning of the uh, of the fight because at that point there were still some very unhappy people. There was uh, uh, not only in Texas, but really across the country. I mean, there was litigation. There was uh, – and in and in Texas, I mean, there, at, I would think at the initial stages, the, the desire to participate both on the part of the uh, – even maybe perhaps the bar or some of the, the – uh, different bar associations were not particularly enthusiastic about uh, about this program, or or were they? Well, it was. I think they understood it, but Texans don't like to be told what, what they to have do. to do, <laughs> and they certainly didn't like the term mandatory. Uh, and and it it was a shame, in effect, that we had to have it mandatory. But the reason it was is that the, the again the the banks put the pressure on their on their clients. And so in order to make it work, we had to go mandatory. There was litigation. You're absolutely correct. Uh, lawyers didn't feel like that they considered it their client's money and the interest on it their client's money, even if it was pooled. So there was litigation over whether we could mandatorily make them support legal services for the poor. I can't imagine lawyers uh, fighting that, but they did. Well, we prevailed on that issue, uh, and the, the courts held that uh, the money did not belong to the client. It was for short-term loans, large amounts for short-term, or long-term uh, on, on small amounts. And that couldn't be calculated. It couldn't be put to a particular account. And therefore, they had no standing to sue uh, for, for how that money was to be used. And that gave us a, the clear signal to go forward uh, and uh, fulfill the, the mandate of IOLTA. And you had the opportunity at key moments <clears throat> Uh, in your career to really make a difference uh, for the IALTA program, whether it was uh, uh, with the Young Lawyers uh, Association or with the uh, the State Bar. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that history as well? Well, uh, IALTA was a part of that uh, because that see, IALTA was in 1984, I think, when we did the uh, the voluntary program. But what led up to that, of course, was the uh, adoption of that program. I, I, my recollection is that it started in Canada, but we really got our idea from Florida. Florida had instituted a plan. I believe it was a voluntary plan. We immediately adopted that plan, and um, and that started our trajectory uh, with regards to IOLTA. And then when we got, eventually we got the mandatory program, IOLTA seemed to be doing, taking care of itself, other than it all depended on interest rates. And so in 2008, 7 and 8, we had great interest rates um, for IOLTA, not good necessarily for the public, and we were making a lot of money. And then, of course, the interest rates went down. The biggest fight, though, came on federal funding for legal services, and that's where the battle really started and was actually ongoing, uh, especially during the Reagan years. President Reagan had put uh, a zero line item for legal services for the poor for the funding the Legal Services Corporation uh, in uh, seven of his eight budgets. And so we were fighting a battle. The ABA really was fighting the battle and NLADA, National Legal Aid and Defenders Association. 
But it was a lonely battle, and, and it didn't seem to be going anywhere. Reagan then appointed a hostile board because Congress kept overriding him. They wouldn't give nearly enough, but they gave some. When they kept overriding, he appointed a, a board that was openly hostile to legal services and wanted to destroy the LSC, Legal Services Corporation, from within, what something he had been able, unable to do from without. And there, that's where we really started uh, the fight for, for legal services in, in this country. So the um, fight in Washington uh, came, uh, uh, was kind of a turning point as well uh, for not only Texas, but legal aid across the nation. It truly was. It truly was. And your leadership, uh, we, we joked a little bit uh, early on about your being the, uh, the grandfather of uh, IALTA, but uh, truth is you're known as the father of the IALTA program. Uh, why, why is that? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'm not sure who <laughs> gave me that <laughs> moniker, to be honest. And it's, it's quite an honor. Uh, there are so many others uh, who were playing big roles in, in uh, fighting for legal aid, uh, supporting legal aid. Uh, the, the big, the, the, the turning point really uh, was a meeting in El Paso. When I was uh, president, uh, actually I was president-elect at that time, when we met, the board, this hostile board that I mentioned, came to Texas and they met, uh, they had a board meeting in El Paso. I went as representative of the state bar to really to welcome them. But I knew about this board. I knew it was a hostile board. Legal services lawyers understood that, and the legal services community really turned out for that meeting. When I went there, I heard this board talking. They absolutely did not know what they were talking about. They were condescending uh, to the lawyers. Uh, I had been to visited most legal services uh, offices in Texas by that time, and I knew how hard they were working, even though they were underfunded, how competent they were, the quality of their work. And, and instead of welcoming them, I really lit into them and, and uh, told them that they were, that their, uh, what they were doing was wrong, uh, their information was wrong, and I stood up and talked about the quality of our legal aid lawyers. The whole room erupted, literally, uh, and stood up, and, and I think the board was taken aback by that. Later, I went to the ABA meeting and uh, joined Mike Greco, who was the president of the Massachusetts Bar, and John Ross, who was president of the New Hampshire Bar, and I was president of the Texas Bar, and we formed a national organization called Bar Leaders for the Preservation of Legal Services to the Poor uh, to help with this fight. Well, overnight, we had lawyers who knew their representatives and senators who were bar leaders throughout the nation as members. So we had a national organization that literally the next day, and uh, we joined the fight with the ABA and LAADA to turn back uh, th this, uh, this issue and, and prevailed. Uh, we say, I think the group saved legal services uh, for the poor, saved the Legal Services Corporation. And uh, even though we've had many battles since then, it's not going to go away. Uh, it was a turning point, I, I think, in, in the battle. Looking back at your personal history, 
The first time that you ran across a legal aid lawyer, uh, uh, what what was your impression? Did you realize how uh, uh, big a role they played initially, or is that something that you uh, kind of learned over time? Well, uh, I think it was really interesting. We had in the legislature was where I really sort of scary place first ran into the is a scary place. <laughs> you know that. Uh, because we never could get funding from the state legislature. And, and the, the word was out that legal services lawyers were communist. Uh, they, they were wide-eyed liberals. Uh, they were messing things up. And so that, that's sort of where I heard about it. I, was, I served as uh, counsel for the Judicial Affairs Committee in the legislature uh, in 1975. And so I'd heard all this. Well, we eventually formed, uh, and Judge Pope headed, headed this up, a task force to study legal aid. Well, we found this, the absolutely opposite was true. We couldn't get anybody to come in and give us a real uh, fact or evidence of uh, legal aid misconduct. And th- we knew that they were being successful in what they were doing. Um, so I think that also was a, a change. We, we really called them on it, saying, look, if, you, if you're really that bad, give us the proof. The other thing that was interesting to me, and I wrote about this in, in the Bar Journal, was that uh, we'd never had a legal aid lawyer where agreements had been filed against them. No ethics violations of, of uh, our legal aid lawyers. And then, of course, I visited the offices during my campaigns, and I really saw what they were doing. It, it, we have always been, always been blessed with a quality, competent legal aid um, system in Texas, regardless of funding. The um, experience that you've had in the courtroom really has been an inspiration to many uh, building a, uh, a successful uh, practice and uh, advocating on behalf of uh, people who uh, would not have had as strong a voice as yours. How did that work in the courtroom, your own personal practice? Did that play a role in your wanting to push the access issue along? Well, yeah, I I would say all of that played a role in it because I chose to be on the plaintiff's side of the docket. The advantage of that to me was that it allowed access for people who could never afford a lawyer to take on large pharmacy companies, large hospitals, neurosurgeons, whatever, uh, because we could we offered our services on a contingent fee system. And that way they could get competent lawyers to go against other competent lawyers on the defense side. And it evened the playing field. That, that was very important to me. Uh, and it was a way that I could represent the individual, probably 90 Five percent of the people I represented could never have afforded a lawyer, but we took on the big, uh, the big uh, law firms, and we took on the big companies, and uh, we were able to prevail uh, enough that I think we produced a little justice. Well, I think you, uh, in many instances and in, in many areas, uh, made such a huge difference uh, for the folks that you that you represented. And and I say I use the word represent not only as a client, but but truly, I mean, there's farm workers in the Rio Grande Valley, or there's uh, any one of a number of uh, of people across the state who have benefited from your work, even if they never met you, even if they, they, they may not know, uh, but, uh, but they're certainly the beneficiaries of your, uh, of your efforts. Let's talk about, you, you, you told us a little bit about the early days, but as you look at the legal aid system today from what it was, what's the biggest uh, difference to you and, and what is it that you're 
most proud of as you, uh, as you take us along those changes? Well, it's quite a change. Uh, it's quite a change in, our, in those who are involved in the effort. Uh, the key was the Access to Justice Commission. Uh, I chaired the uh, Standing Committee on Legal Aid and Indigent Defendants for the ABA. Uh, and what we were, that was after IOLTA had become established in virtually all states by that time. But we still were having trouble getting the states to concentrate, to focus uh, on, on legal aid, uh, on, on pro bono and all of that. The idea of the, uh, co- uh, the commissions was to get, we knew the formula, we discovered the formula, was to get the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court involved. And uh, that was what we turned our efforts to, was creating access to justice commissions in all the states, just as we had done in, uh, with IOLTA. Texas, and I give Deborah, uh, Justice Deborah Hankinson a lot of credit for this. I, I give the entire Supreme Court of Texas uh, from then until now a great credit for what they've done. They really jumped on this and not only became uh, the, the state leader, but became national leaders. Texas now is a national leader in the Access to Justice Commission system. Uh, it has created a, a total focus on pro bono. It's created a, a fundraising uh, arm to, to raise additional funds, and it's made legal aid and access to justice a, a primary number one focus in Texas, leading the nation in that effort. The downside is that the legal need, the need for legal services for the poor, has increased. Texas numbers, population has increased. The gap between the rich and the poor has increased. And even though at that time we were only meeting 20%, even with our renewed effort, we're probably only meeting about 10% of the real need in Texas. So that's where we are right now. That's a pretty amazing, I mean, it, it has grown uh, exponentially. More lawyers are involved in Absolutely. providing legal aid than have ever been provided before, uh, helping more people than they've ever helped before. But we haven't been able to catch up with it. And do you think it is a uh, question of commitment on the part of uh, lawyers or legislative leaders, or is it simply a function of uh, statistics and numbers? So many people are moving to Texas that uh, we just haven't been able to catch up. Yeah, I would hate to say it's uh, ever just a, a numbers issue. I, I, I do think the commitment is greater than it ever has been, but it could be so much greater, so much more. Um, there's so much more we can do. I do think, though, for us to have any hope of ever closing that gap, we're going to have to change the economics of the uh, access to justice. It costs too much. That will have to change. When, I don't know, but it's a long-term, it'll be a long-term effort. I do know this, that whatever we do, it will always be a requirement for the lawyers, especially the lawyers, but uh, non-lawyers as well, to focus and uh, enlarge the effort for legal services for the poor. Access to justice is the key. It will not work. Our system will not work, and it is not working unless everyone, everyone has access to the legal system. We really have seen that in the, um, on the border, immigration issues. We know that if individuals finding themselves in that situation have a lawyer, the success rate 
is in the 90% range. If they don't have a lawyer, they're not going to prevail. We know the value of a lawyer, and it doesn't have to be an immigration lawyer. It can be a bankruptcy lawyer. It can be a real estate lawyer. It can be a trial lawyer. We don't know all about immigration law, but we know a hell of a lot more than a non-lawyer, and, uh, th- and that has proven to be the case. So these are, these are all things that are going on. They will continue to be challenges. I think now we're in a better position to, to meet that challenge. We're up to the challenge. We have the support of our Supreme Court. We have the Access to Justice Commission. We are in better shape than we've ever been to fight the battle. And the truth is that so many people of different walks of life need legal aid at one time or another. We've been able to help as an example uh, veterans who've been uh, off uh, serving in Afghanistan or Iraq and come back and perhaps their uh, their home or their car has been uh, repossessed and, and they find themselves in need of a lawyer. We've got uh, uh, victims of hurricanes uh, who have uh, lost property and are arguing with perhaps an insurance company. All of those types of, uh, of cases end up uh, in legal aid. When legal aid was envisioned, was there a limit to the kinds of cases that you thought they should be uh, involved in or helping? It has become such a broad area where people need help in so many. Uh, is, was that part of the dream, or has that just grown that way? Well, I think the initial idea was that it would be open, uh, that they would be able to help them with any legal issue, including suing the government. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, debate over that, and, and a lot of the uh, animus towards legal aid or legal aid lawyers who have taken on pet causes of legislators, uh, national or state, and won. Right. And so then they turn against legal services. The fact is, though, our numbers are so great, primarily our effort is in family law. And that's where my pro bono docket has always been, because that's the greatest need Uh, And it's so important. I mean, families uh, need to have uh, the access to the system. We have been limited in the breadth of what the legal aid lawyer can do simply because of the numbers. But I assure you, they have the ability and the competency to do it all. I think uh, the other uh, big change demographically since the beginning of the, uh, the early days of the legal aid system is that Texas has changed from a uh, more rural state to really a more urban state. Is that how, – how do you see legal aid facing the, the, the changing uh, demographics of Texas? Was that something that you all thought about in the early days of – did you all plan light years ahead or, or, or were you just struggling to make sure that legal aid survived till, till tomorrow? I would like to say it was all planned – <laughs> and has been 100% successful. But the fact is, it's been a struggle uh, from day one. I never can remember it not being a struggle to get the numbers. Uh, one of the things about the struggle that has changed is we have no shortage today of lawyers who would be more than willing to pursue a career as a legal aid lawyer. Uh, We have great emphasis in our law schools now, certainly at the University of Texas where I went to law school, uh, on the uh, focus on public interest law. We are producing a lot of lawyers from these law schools who, if they had the opportunity, if there were a place for them, they would choose that. Unfortunately, we have limited, because of money, we have limited 
space for, for legal aid lawyers. But there are changes. Uh, it's not planned. It's a struggle. I think it's going to continue to be a struggle as long as the numbers are what they are. With respect to uh, the amounts of money that have been uh, generated over time, did you ever feel like the IELTA program in Texas was going to be as successful uh, as it has been at giving grants and, uh, and really creating, standing up uh, programs in places where there had never been a legal aid office before. I, I can tell you there's a legal aid office in Alpine, Texas yeah. uh, that, uh, that wasn't there before. I do believe we had that vision. Uh, the, the vision of IOLTA was that uh, that is something that could make a major difference, and certainly in the amount of money. We, we knew the kind of law that was being practiced in Texas. We knew that the trust funds uh, were huge in some of these firms, and that if we could tap into that, it would produce significant amounts of income. And it did. I mean, we ranged, I don't know, uh, as high as $20 million uh, in a year from the interest on lawyers' trust accounts. So it varies greatly, but it can be large sums of money. We, we understood that, and that's why we fought so hard to make it work, and that's where it became critical to, to make it mandatory. Well, you coached a lot of people through the early days of this program. So uh, as the coach, if you, were, if you were giving advice now, what is it that the legal aid programs, the IOLTA-type programs, need to do to do their jobs better to either raise more revenue to uh, to uh, make themselves uh, more uh, visible because frankly a lot of people don't know that legal aid services exist or to uh, make sure that uh, that uh, public opinion uh, is on their side well I, I I must say we have done a lot of things right recently and again, I give a lot of credit to the Supreme Court. For the first time ever, we got, what, $17 million from the legislature, where before we had never gotten anything for, uh, for legal service for the poor in civil matters. Uh, we need to build on that. Again, it's not consistent. We can't count on it. It's a battle, but at least every we have— Every two years. Yeah, every two years. And we have at least we have our court going over and fighting for that and being very successful in many ways. It is a constant funding issue. I think the Access to Justice Commission will continue to focus. Before, you know, the, when it was the state bar, only the state bar, it was whatever the, the president focused on. My focus was on legal services for the poor. But th there was no assurance the next president would want to focus on that where the Access to Justice Commission has created a constant focus every day, every month, every year uh, on legal aid. I do not believe there are any lawyers who do not know that there is such a thing as legal aid in Texas. I can't even com uh, imagine that. We have done at least that. That does not mean that they're involved. That does not mean that they're contributing. That's an ongoing battle. Uh, the other wholesale, the, the large changes will be changed in uh, making our legal system more economic, in affecting, uh, improving our economy for the poor, raising the poor out of that so that they can uh, have access to legal system to the legal system without going through legal aid. Well, you convinced many, many, many juries over your time that uh, that you were right. So, uh, how would you convince the jury, the the, the public in Texas, that? the investment in legal aid is worth making? If you were arguing that case 
to the jury today, what would you say? Well, I, I would say what I've always been saying. Uh, it's just as important for the wealthy to have a legal, uh, a legal system where the poor have access to it. it. It's good for everybody. It's good for our society. It's the only way our system can really work. And, and if they would really sit down and think about this, they would understand that if you deprive any segment, certainly any large segment, such as our, our, our poor population, of access either to the health system or to the legal system, our society will not work. Our system won't work. And we've seen it happen. We know that. And I think we have to keep explaining that to them. But the gap is, is a significant detriment to the advancement of our society because it prevents access of our poor to both the health system and the legal system. For those people who are interested in, um, in joining the fight to uh, expand uh, legal services to the poor, who are interested in uh, uh, helping make sure that more people are served, what would you say to them? How would they go about doing that? How do you, how do you get involved? How there's, do you join the fray? There's so many ways to do it today. Uh, one, most of the, certainly the, uh, uh, the major local bars have clinics that lawyers can uh, participate in. Uh, we have started a program in Texas. Uh, Terry Tottenham, when he was president of the state bar, created a, uh, a program for veterans. That program has been replicated throughout the United States now. Our Access to Justice Commission has focused on veterans. We have done a great job of increasing the amount of funding for uh, access to justice to veterans. There are many opportunities in clinics to participate in helping the veterans. Again, every lawyer ought to have a pro bono docket, primarily in family law because that's where it's greatly needed, but others as well. And that will all make a difference. It makes a big difference. But remember, the numbers are pretty significant, and, and we need to uh, all participate. It can't be just a few. Well, as we close out today's um, segment, Bill, I want to thank you for being here. I also want to tell you, let me, let me close out on one thing. I, uh, my first job uh, straight out of law school was working in the medical malpractice section of the Texas Attorney General's office. Okay. And I used to love, whenever I found out that uh, you were trying a case, I used to love to go watch uh, and sit and watch you either uh, pick the jury or do the opening or do the closing or even and certainly the the examination and cross-examination of witnesses. I, I was, as I said from the beginning, you've always been someone that I've really looked up to. Tell us a little bit more about your, uh, your career as a lawyer and how you started and how you went in. And, and we'll end on, uh, on that note. We'll end on uh, uh, Bill Whitehurst, the lawyer. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for your kind words. I was uh, in the JAG uh, right out of law school. I had an Air Force ROTC obligation. So I became a JAG lawyer uh, for the Air Force and uh, had a grill break uh, when I was stationed in Okinawa for two and a half years defending felony cases. So that's where I got trial work. I didn't have a mentor, but it was like being thrown in the ocean and told to swim, but it worked. When I came back, I was lucky to have a mentor like Matt Kidd, uh, and I knew I wanted to do litigation. That was uh, very clear to me. And, of course, in my medical background, it was obvious that I would go into the medical legal field. Uh, I've been blessed with great success in that area. 
I think the key is believing in your client. Uh, you can't be a good trial lawyer. You can't convince a jury if you don't believe it yourself. It's very, that's the, probably the key to my success if I, for whatever I've had. Um, I will tell you it's been a wonderful career, but not just because of my work in legal mal in, in malpractice, but also because of the variety of my in my profession uh, of working with the bar, uh, working with lawyers all over the state, becoming a, a state and national leader uh, for legal services for the poor. That has enhanced my career immeasurably. And in looking back, um, that, along with managing uh, a family, uh, has, has been a wonderful, wonderful career for me. Thank you so much for all that you've done for uh, legal services uh, in Texas. Uh, it's a pleasure to have the father of IOLTA uh, here with us today. <laughs> soon, uh, be, Bill, soon to Bill be great-grandfather. <laughs> this is Pete Gallego on behalf of the Access to Justice <laughs> Foundation. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Pete.